to preach the word of God to you and to participate in this series we've been doing through the Apostles' Creed. There's a television program that's been running for over 30 years on a local station in Jamaica, and it's called Profile. Every week, the host of Profile interviews a different guest. But if you've watched the show a couple of times, you start to realize that the arc of the stories, the arc of each story is much the same. The guests will talk about their humble beginnings, their early struggles, their determination to make something of themselves, their long journey in overcoming the odds and opposition, until finally they achieved success and became a person of significance. By far the most popular episode that Profile has ever done featured a young man telling his story of humble beginnings in the rural town of Sherwood Content and his ascent to become world-renowned as arguably the greatest sprinter of all time. Usain Bolt's global success and his story of humble beginnings have had a massive impact on many young men and women in Jamaica. These days, children, if they have the slightest inclination, the slightest interest, the slightest gift when it comes to running. They're thinking about Usain Bolt and they are working hard because for them, this represents an opportunity to rise from their own poverty, from their own humble beginnings and to make something of themselves. And isn't this why we tell these kinds of stories? Whether on, on TV shows like Profile or in storybooks we read our kids or in magazines or blog articles, uh, that we read as adults, or through murals painted on buildings in West Philly. We want heroes to admire and to emulate. We want examples to follow. The text we're focused on today, in Philippians 2, 5 to 8, also tells a story, but this is no rags to riches story. In fact, it's entirely the opposite. Never has there been such a story of a descent from riches to rags and filth. Yet, paradoxically, Paul is doing the same thing that we do in our TV shows, storybooks and articles, for the Christians in Philippi that he's writing this letter to. He wants them to admire, even to adore, and to imitate the attitude of Jesus, who voluntarily and deliberately went from riches to rags. So the big thing to see here today in this passage is that Paul is holding up Jesus in his condescension for our adoration and imitation. Paul is holding up Jesus in his condescension for our adoration and imitation. As we walk through this text, Paul wants us to see first the heart which led Jesus to take this journey down, and then two actions through which he expressed that heart, which describe his condescension. He emptied himself and he humbled himself. We're looking at this passage as we continue to walk through the Apostles' Creed. The section that we're contemplating today and that I'm expanding on says, He, Jesus, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. Some of you who may have learned the Apostles' Creed in another context may have noticed that the version we're using says he descended to the dead and not he descended into hell. There are questions about when this clause became a part of the creed as it developed. 
and what those who included it meant by it. It was definitely a part of the creed by the 4th century. Some churches that use the creed actually omit it, and omitting it certainly removes some difficult questions. Now, I want to address this briefly, but the questions about this phrase in the creed are not the main focus of my sermon. We don't want to avoid difficult questions, but it would serve us best to focus most of our time on the glorious truths that are contained in this section. So then, what should we make of this phrase? For one, we need to remember that the authors of the creed were not writing in English. What we use is a translation. And the words that they used at the time had a range of meanings. Nowadays, when we hear hell, we automatically associate that and, and exclusively associate that with a place of punishment. But back when the creed was being written, the equivalent words also referred to the place of the dead. This troublesome phrase, despite requiring some effort to explain, does serve us in a very important way in our contemplation of the Apostles' Creed. It illustrates the fact that the creed is not the final authority, but the scripture is. We hold to the creed and gladly confess it to the extent that it reflects the truth of the scriptures. Rendering this phrase, he, had dis he descended into hell, considering our understanding of hell, is at best unclear and at worst an error. So as we handle the creed and affirm it, we want to be careful to affirm the biblical truths it captures and to recognize that creeds are subject to revision, but the scriptures are not. The Bible definitely does not teach that when Jesus died, he went to hell to be tormented. Just before his death, Jesus said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. He had also previously said to the thief on the cross, Today you will be with me in paradise. So Jesus, in anticipating his death, was not expecting to be with the thief tormented in hell. No, he was expecting to be with the thief that day, but in paradise. This is why we agree with those who use the phrase, descended to the dead. It steers us away from confusion and helps us to recognize that Jesus' death was a real death. He wasn't unconscious in the grave, as some modern skeptics try to speculate. He tasted death for us. This passage in Philippians 2, 5-8 gives us a chance to look back at the sections of the creed that were unfolded by Leo and Tim in the last two messages. Leo laid out for us the biblical truths captured in the phrase, I believe in Jesus Christ, his only son or Lord. And Tim laid out the truths behind, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. These truths, as we'll come to see, are echoed in this passage in Philippians. But looking at these truths through the lens of this passage helps us to see something we may have missed so far. Both this passage and the Apostles' Creed do not merely present a resume for Jesus, noting facts about him. What they present to us is a journey. A journey that is a journey down. So first, and this is my first point, let's consider Jesus' heart. A heart to leave the heights. A heart to leave the heights. Look with me at verse 5 of this passage. Here we find Paul giving a daunting command to the Christians he's writing to. Paul had founded this particular local church. These people were dear to him. In chapter 1, he talks about the joy he has as he prays for them because of the partnership they share in the gospel. He speaks of how he holds them in his heart and how he yearns for them with the affection of Jesus. 
He knows that they're going through difficulty, that they're going through suffering and persecution for the sake of the gospel. So he encourages them to stand firm, and he tells them that even that suffering is a glorious gift from God. At the start of chapter 2, after reminding them of the blessings of being saved and of being a part of a community of believers, Paul gives these believers instructions about how they should live with, think of, and treat one another. Those instructions build up to, and probably are really anchored in the command in verse 5, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. Paul then literally breaks into song or poetry as he compellingly describes Jesus' attitude, his heart, and how that heart led him to leave the heights and to empty himself and humble himself. Most commentators, when they look at this section of Philippians, recognize these verses between 5 and 11 as a hymn celebrating Jesus' humiliation and exaltation. Perhaps it was a hymn that Paul himself composed, or it was just one that he knew and used in this letter. And I figure preachers have not changed that much in 2,000 years, because we still love to quote hymns in our sermons. But before we focus on the first half of this hymn, which describes Jesus' humiliation, it's important that we hear the command that Paul is giving us in the right way. We're being called to respond to it, and that response will first involve our attitude and then our actions. But if we hear this command in the wrong way, it has a potential to discourage us. It has a potential to become a burden to us. How can I, how can you, how can we possibly be humble like Jesus? The gracious thing is that this passage is not primarily about us. And our hope for obedience to this command is not found in ourselves. It's absolutely true that the attitude that Jesus expressed in his humiliating journey, we are called to express in relating to each other as his redeemed people. But it's important to recognize that the way we relate to each other as redeemed people is not simply a matter of seeing and following an example there's something supernatural at work here. You see, the example of Christ's humility that Paul gives us here can't shape us until it saves us. And the effect of the work Jesus described here not only rescues us from the punishment of God that was rightfully ours, but also brings us into Christ and into relationship with each other. That's what the translators of the ESV are trying to capture by saying, have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus. The humble heart that Jesus displayed in becoming human and dying a painful and shameful death for us, he supernaturally gives to us. Gives to us all as a community of believers. But Paul's language here is not passive. He wants us to think and act with this mindset. What Paul is doing here is very similar to the well-known command that he gives us in verses 12 and 13 of this same chapter in connection with our obedience. Following his portrayal of Jesus' obedience in the hymn in verse 8, he says, Work out your salvation, for God works in you. Apply yourself to obeying God's commands, fully confident that God is at work in you to cause you both to want to do it and to do it. Isn't that hopeful? In a similar way, verse 5 points both to something God has done and something we are being called to do. 
In both cases, we can be confident in the work of God in our hearts as we seek to be obedient to him. So let's look then at how Paul describes the heart of our Savior. Look with me at verse 6. Who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. When Paul says Jesus was in the form of God, he's not saying anything different than what Leo laid out for us a few weeks ago. In his pre-incarnate state, Jesus was Jesus, the Word of God, was with God, and he was God. Paul's language here points us to a couple of truths about Jesus. He's saying that Jesus possessed all the intrinsic qualities of God. Thus, when Paul says the form of God, he connects it with equality with God. But the word we translate as form can also speak to outward appearance. The Bible teaches us that God is invisible. Yet at the same time, the Old Testament is filled with all of these glorious manifestations of his presence, described as the glory of God. As one commentator says, in the Old Testament, the glory of God is the outward appearance of the presence and majesty of God. The glory of God is the outward appearance of the presence and majesty of God. The Gospel writer John is of great help to us as we try to see what Paul is saying about Jesus more clearly. John, in chapter 12 of his gospel, quotes from the words of a prophecy in Isaiah chapter 6 and comments that Isaiah said these things because he saw his glory and spoke of him. Amazingly, John is talking about Jesus. He's saying that in Isaiah chapter 6, Isaiah saw Jesus. He's saying Isaiah saw a vision of the pre-incarnate Jesus. And in that vision, Jesus is sitting on a throne, high and lifted up. And the train of his robe fills the temple. And there are angels who are worshiping him, humbling themselves and covering their faces and feet and calling to each other, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And there's an earthquake and there's smoke and the vision is so spectacular and so terrifying that Isaiah cries out thinking he's going to die immediately. If I was in Jamaica, I'd say, me dead now. <laughs> These are the heights that Jesus had a heart to leave when he humbled himself. This is what Paul means when he says that Jesus was in the form of God. And Paul's language here creates a powerful contrast. Here he says Jesus was in the form of God. In the next verse, he tells us that Jesus, in humbling himself, deliberately took the form of a servant. One commentator summarizes Jesus' condescension well. The form of God is glory. The form of a slave is humiliation. And the heart... The attitude that Paul is pointing us to is one that did not consider equality with God a thing to be grasped. Again, the language here is difficult. But what Paul is saying is that Jesus did not see his exalted status as something to be clung to and used in a self-serving way. Instead, he had a heart to serve others. In fact, some commentators point to the fact that the heart attitude Jesus had was precisely because he was God. And that is what God is like. Isn't it an amazing thing to serve a God who is not self-serving, 
but is always giving of himself, not grudgingly, but because that's his nature. That's the heart that Jesus had that led him to relinquish the glories of heaven and make a journey which would take him down into the mess of fallen humanity. A heart to leave the heights. And what did his heart lead him to do? His heart was expressed in two actions, two deliberate steps down. He emptied himself and he humbled himself. So first, and my second point, a heart to empty himself. Look with me again in your Bibles at verse 7. Paul describes the first step in Jesus' condescension in this way. Jesus emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men. The verb translated emptied himself has led some people to understand that in the incarnation, Jesus shed elements of his divinity. The thinking goes that, well, God never grows weary and Jesus got tired, so therefore he cannot be all-powerful. Or God knows all things and Jesus was a baby, he had to learn things, and even as an adult, he admitted to not knowing certain things. So therefore he could not have been all-knowing. As difficult a thing as it is to, to wrap our minds around the incarnation, this passage properly understood doesn't support that kind of thinking. You see, Paul explains what he means when he says Jesus emptied himself. We can see it in English, but it's even more vivid in the original language. He emptied himself by taking the form of a servant, by being born in the likeness of men. Jesus emptied himself by adding humanity to his divinity. This was subtraction by addition. Now, math teachers, please don't come at me afterwards about this. It works, trust me. I'm really grateful for being a part of a preaching team where we help each other and give each other feedback, and I'm specifically grateful to Tim for this kind of bad math and this illustration. But think of a beautiful new sports car. Now, if you came to me after this service and we started talking cars, you'd know within a minute that I'm not a car guy. But I remember several years ago, I was walking through an airport, and they had an Audi display in that airport, and I looked across and I saw the Audi TT Coupe. And I tell you the truth, thou shalt not covet. Yes. It was just one of those moments where I'm not a car person. I was like, wow, look at that thing. I mean, this thing was in my favorite finish, floret silver, and it was shiny. Now, think of taking that car and plastering it all over with mud, covering all of that floret silver entirely. The brilliance of that finish would be lost entirely. Subtraction by addition. The TT Coupe has 18-inch wheels with these gorgeous chrome rims that make it look muscular. But if you covered those with grime and mud, their distinctiveness would be lost completely. Subtraction by addition. The interior of that car is refined and tasteful. It has hand-stitched leather seats and trim, automatic climate control built into all the vents. But if you covered it with mud, you'd walk by it without getting a glimpse of that inner glory. Subtraction by addition. As far as I'm concerned, the Audi TT is a thing of beauty. But if you took one of those and covered it with mud and parked it right outside my house, I probably wouldn't even recognize what kind of car it was. In a similar way, the one who was spectacular beyond description, whose radiance was unbearably bright, emptied himself by becoming human. And the result was that Jesus appeared ordinary. 
And worse than that, he took the lowest place, the place of a slave. The people Paul was writing to in Philippi, they would see slaves every day in the marketplace. So when Paul uses language like, like, like this, they understand what he's talking about. They know that that's the person you walk by and you don't even look at. You walk by or maybe you shake your head just feeling sorry for them. It's conceivable that Jesus could have become human and been born as royalty. That, in fact, was where the Magi, who came looking for him after his birth, thought to look in a palace in Jerusalem. But as one commentator helpfully points out, the one who could have rightfully claimed the highest position in human history and justly received supreme honors deliberately sought the lowest position and submitted himself to extreme humiliation. When Paul says Jesus took the form of a servant, it's possible that he was meditating on Isaiah chapter 53. He certainly had Isaiah 45 in mind in the coming verses when he speaks of every knee bowing and every tongue confessing that Jesus Christ is Lord, as we sang earlier. And the pictures in Isaiah 53 bear a striking resemblance to these verses. These are verses 2 and 3 of Isaiah chapter 53. For he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and as one from whom men hid their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. That Jesus would take the journey down from the spectacular pictures of Jesus we see in Isaiah 6 to the horrific pictures we see in Isaiah 53 is utterly astounding. In Isaiah 6, the angels hid their faces in Jesus' presence out of awe and out of respect. In Isaiah 53, mere men hid their faces from him because of how little they thought of him. It would be one thing for someone to be subjected to such a loss of dignity against their will. It's an entirely different thing for someone to choose this path and this fate for themselves. This was Jesus' heart to empty himself. Look with me at verse 8, where we see the second stage, the final step down in Jesus' condescension. And this is the third point, a heart to humble himself. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Here, we see the extent of Jesus' journey down. He did not just become human and take the lowest possible position as a slave. On top of emptying himself, he humbled himself by choosing to suffer and die in obedience to his Father, specifically to die on a cross. The Gospels narrate this stage of Jesus' downward journey for us. This is the Gospel writer Mark. And they were on the road going up to Jerusalem, and Jesus was walking ahead of them. And they were amazed, and those who followed were afraid. And taking the twelve again, he began to tell them what was to happen to him, saying, 
See, we are going up to Jerusalem, and the Son of Man will be delivered over to the chief priests and to the scribes, and they will condemn him to death and deliver him over to the Gentiles. As he walked towards Jerusalem, Jesus knew exactly what he'd be facing. Every step on that road was a step of humility, a step of obedience. Even as they walked with him on that journey, his disciples, who still did not understand the heart of their Lord, were jostling for position and importance. And Jesus, as he walked deliberately towards his death, graciously continued to teach them. Jesus called them to him and said to them, You know that those who are considered rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great ones exercise authority over them. But it shall not be so among you. But whoever would be great among you must be your servant. And whoever would be first among you must be the slave of all. For even the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. On the night that Jesus was betrayed by one of his own disciples, his journey took him down to the Garden of Gethsemane. Here, as he agonized over what he was about to face, as he poured out his heart to his Father, we see most clearly how difficult and painful a journey this was for Jesus. Here we see most clearly the extent of his willingness to obey. And he said, Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me. Yet not what I will, but what you will. He descended all the way down to put himself where we were, to take our place, to drain the cup of the wrath of God that we deserved. What kind of leader behaves this way? Jesus' ancestor, David the king, who was a great and godly man in many ways, sought to use his power to cover his own sin, his adultery with Bathsheba. When all his other attempts at manipulation failed, he abused the obedience of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah, who was one of his soldiers, who willingly obeyed David's self-serving command to go where the fighting was fiercest, going to his death. We who live at this point in history are being treated, or better yet, being subjected to displays of selfish ambition and conceit, self-promotion and arrogance that surely are not a new thing in the world based on Paul's warnings against them, but are amplified for us each day by the media. Jesus was much greater than his ancestor David. He willingly obeyed his father's command to go where the fighting was fiercest, to face the father's wrath on sin, fully poured out, going to his death. And he did so to atone for all of our self-serving sins, all our lies, all our pride, all our covetousness, all our manipulation, all our adultery. To descend voluntarily all the way to dying on a cross was as low as any human being could go. There was no death that was so humiliating, so dehumanizing to either Romans or Jews. It was reserved not just for the worst of criminals, but for slaves and for foreigners, for outcasts. It's become customary in the modern Western world to speak of the rights we have as citizens of a particular country. 
it was illegal for Roman citizens to be tied up or to be beaten. They saw each other as having such dignity by virtue of having Roman citizenship that they would not inflict such treatment on each other. And crucifixion? Crucifixion would not even be mentioned in polite conversation. It's common in the world we live in to see crucifixes worn as jewelry. But understand that such a thing would be unthinkable in the culture of Paul's day. D.A. Carson compares it to wearing a mushroom cloud emblem around your neck as jewelry. There was nothing as offensive as the cross. And this passage is telling us that Jesus' death on a cross was a voluntary act on his part. He chose to walk every step of the road of obedience that took him all the way down to the bottom rung of human existence. He chose to spend those last hours hanging naked, struggling for each breath, and using those breaths to speak words of love and forgiveness that extend even to us. Father, forgive them, for they know not what they do. In its immediate context, verse 8 is not drawing our attention to the redemptive value of the cross. It's not in the first place reminding us that in dying, Jesus was thinking of us. Even in, even in this context, such a thought is never far from us, nor should it be. After all, Paul had just given instructions in verse 4 that each of us should look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. And surely he's holding up Jesus as the one who sets the ultimate precedent for this. But what Paul is doing in this hymn is showing us the end point of Jesus' voluntary journey down. He's showing us the shocking and horrific extent to which Jesus, the one who was in the form of God and equal to God, voluntarily and deliberately went in empty himself and humbling himself. We believe in Jesus Christ, his only Son, or Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit and born of the Virgin Mary. He suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended to the dead. What this passage can help us to see, and what we have captured for us in the Apostles' Creed, is that these things are not just a statement of what happened to Jesus. There's so much more than that. They express who Jesus is. They express the glorious nature of his character, the willingness of the great and glorious God whom we serve to condescend, to empty himself by becoming human, and to humble himself by choosing to die in abject humiliation. This is our God. This is what he's like. That's who he is. And you see, the truth is, I have to ask myself whether I even truly admire that. Of course, it's hard for us to gaze at the cross like this. If you're not numb to it, and if you don't numb yourself to this, it's a deeply disturbing reality. But what I'm asking myself, and what I want to ask you, is can we sing these words that are in Philippians 2, 5 to 8? Are we ashamed of Jesus' humiliation? Or can we celebrate these truths with the Apostle Paul because we, like him, see the beauty of humility? So while it's gloriously true that Christ died for our sins, that he went through this for us, 
The glorious truth we see today is that Jesus walked the whole road down, down, down to the cross because that's who he is. That's what he's like. We don't have to look at the cross and lament its necessity. We should not look at the cross and wish it didn't have to be that way. The cross was Jesus' deliberate, glorious expression of his humility. It expressed the true nature of God in a way that all the, glories of, all the glories of creation cannot. My youngest son, Jacob, really enjoys being contradictory. He's five now, and his, his verbal powers are growing, and this is becoming an art form for him. So over the last few weeks, as we've stayed with the Heidengrens, we have had some hilarious interactions around their dining table as Aaron Heidengren has become his favorite verbal sparring partner. Jacob feels a deep and abiding need to contradict everything Aaron says. And the rest of us have said, only half-joking, that these two need to have a podcast. When Jesus taught his disciples on the road to Jerusalem that their relationships were not to look like those of the Gentiles, he was not behaving like my son Jacob. He was not being contradictory. He was not giving them a way to live so that they did not look like other people. He was teaching them to be like him. To be like he really is and has always been. The heart underneath my own, surface, my own sur service rises to the surface sometimes. Those times tend to be when I feel like my kids are being ungrateful. Or when I feel like my wife has not noticed all of the ways in which I selflessly serve. Or if I feel like the people I serve in church are criticizing me and it's unwarranted. When that happens, I can go from joyful to bitter and resentful faster than Usain Bolt can finish that 100 meters. Now, if we don't adore our God, whose nature it is to condescend, then we will not truly be like him. We may serve, but our service will always come from our own motives and our own motivations. And it will not be durable. It will not be joyfully sustainable. It won't be an expression of our new nature, which is being renewed in knowledge after the image of its creator. But praise God, he is the one who is causing us to be transformed into people who adore him in his self-giving nature, even as we behold his son, Jesus, through the scriptures. He's at work in us both to will and to work for his good pleasure. One of the things that has struck me as I've settled into Sovereign Grace Churches is the culture of honor that we have. I've enjoyed and see a lot of value in the way we consistently express appreciation for people, for how they serve, in our prayers and in our words to them. We're surely not perfect, but it's a wonderful quality to have in a family of churches and in our local churches, isn't it? But what I think I saw much more clearly as I prepared this message is how that practice not only keeps morale high and results in a more joyful community, but how it celebrates our humble service to one another, how it celebrates the heart of our Savior. So let's keep doing that. We've been looking at the example of Jesus who exemplifies and creates in us a heart like his, a heart that would lower itself to serve others. Today we heard from Sam Heidengren, and he shared how much he learned from his parents in terms of service and how that's affected his own life. Now, even if you did not grow up in a family like Sam's family, this letter from Paul points us to the fact that in God's family, 
in the local church, he has graciously given us examples to follow as we seek to grow in service. Later in chapter 2, Paul holds up the example of Timothy and Epaphroditus. In chapter 3, verse 17, he points out his own example and that of others in their community. He says, brothers, join in imitating me and keep your eyes on those who walk according to the example you have in us. As we together, Risen Hope, pursue humble service to each other, God has given us hearts that are like Jesus' heart, and he's working inside of us. And he's given us examples in his word and in this local church that you can imitate. Now, I've only been among you guys for probably about two months now, but I've seen so many examples of sacrificial and consistent and joyful service. I commend you for this. Recognize that you're blessed in this and strive to imitate those who are setting the pace in terms of service in this community. Our theme in these weeks is an expanding and abiding mission. The ministry fair, which will be on November 5th, is an opportunity for all of us to showcase and to discover areas for humble service. And what Jesus' attitude does for us as he shapes our hearts by it is moves us out of trying to serve while fully settled in our comfort zones. It's a good thing to seek to serve in the giftings you have, but that's different from trying to serve from a place in which your comfort is undisturbed. So when you come to the ministry fair and you see an area of need that would stretch you and require significant sacrifice on your part, don't automatically cross it off your list. Discuss it with your spouse or a good friend. Talk to one of the pastors. Raise it with a community leader and let them help you to make a decision about it. We also have a missions fund offering coming up on November 12th. This is an opportunity to serve with our money and not, to, and not just to serve the local assembly, but others beyond the local assembly, including me as I lead a team to plant a church in Jamaica next summer. Sean and Ruth and Taylor, who are a part of my team, are here with us today. And we all are so grateful to you all for your partnership with us in the gospel. It means so much to us to have people who share the same values and share the same goal of welcoming people with the gospel and shepherding, shepherding people with the gospel. As I conclude, I want you to notice something. Notice that this hymn, this story, does not end in death. In the coming weeks, we'll look at the next sections of the Apostles' Creed, which say, the third day he rose again from the dead, he ascended into heaven and is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. The second half of this hymn in Philippians says, Therefore God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of of God the Father. This is our God. This is the Savior and Lord that we adore. We marvel at him and adore him as he displays a heart that would leave the heights to empty himself and humble himself. And we marvel at him as God the Father exalts him, lifting him up again to the place that he deserves. G. Walter Hansen serves us again when he says, Christians do not merely look to Christ as a great moral example whom they follow, but as the exalted Lord whom they worship and obey. And as we, in obedience to God, seek to pursue humility with the attitude, 
with the attitude we've been given in Christ, we too can expect a glorious end. In Philippians chapter 3, verses 20 and 21, Paul reminds us, but our citizenship is in heaven. And from it we await a Savior, the Lord Jesus Christ, who will transform our lowly body to be like his glorious body by the power that enables him even to subject all things to himself. This is our God. May God grant us grace to see him more clearly, to adore him as he deserves, and to serve each other humbly as we wait for his return.